Welcome to EPM Conversations. My name is Cameron Lackbor. John Booth. Tim German. Salvin Katukaran. And our very special guest, Tom Shea. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for coming on our podcast. Um, I expect this will be the number one ranked podcast episode. Awfully, awfully quickly. We are very excited. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, some of our audience might not might not know who you are, although I, I suspect that's not terribly likely. But for those of us who do not, um, could you give us a little bit of background on who you are? I will. Thank you, Cameron. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be here and, and talk to you guys. You know, I'm uh, I'm first and foremost a tech kind of EPM geek, so this will be fun. Uh, I'm Tom Shea. I'm the CEO of OneStream Software and one of the founders and uh, original architects of the software. So um, maybe you could give us some background on how you got to where you are. You know, the the journey and the path to what we do um informs what we do it's 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 not just plop here i am the the ceo of a successful cpm company um give us give us a little bit of uh, history about how you got to where you are today sure um well i started off uh, i i always like to say i'm i'm an unlikely entrepreneur which is which i think a lot of times people are intrigued when you're an entrepreneur how you, how you got there and i started off as an accountant you know, really, you know, went to undergrad, got an accounting and finance degree and started my career tracking towards wanting to be a CFO of a large company. And so the idea was, you know, go and kind of do my time. I worked at Chrysler, United Technologies, ITT. And the things that the thing that was interesting about that journey is I really started to learn what ultimately would be, you know, what my our current customers of the OneStream product do. So I think that's one of the things that was a, a key ingredient in uh, my at least the ability to understand and and uh, try to solve problems for large large companies in this area was the fact that I spent ten years in corporate finance and I, I always claimed that I made every journal entry known to man while somebody was screaming over my shoulder as when when would it be done you know at midnight when we were trying to do the close so you know I, I I've been there so I I sort of understand it and. Um, that really, but all that while, I will say, I, I sold my first software product when I was 22 years old. And um, I think I made a dollar an hour when I did that. It's something I, I had talked about. I don't know how I even did this. It was something that my dad sort of told one of his companies that he worked with and said, oh, my son will write that for you just because I had been tinkering with software for a while. And I said, okay, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And I guess that sort of started the journey. So while I was you know, working my way up in corporate America, I was selling software products on the side, sort of one-off customized uh, business applications that they were like job tracking software, a lot like you would see as a consultant. They were tracking the first software that I was creating was tracking um, CAD CAM designers time against projects that they were doing here in the automotive uh, industry. So I called the product job tracker. And that's sort of how I got started in software. So you spent that time, I think after about 10 years, uh, I realized, well, wait a minute, I think I might have picked the wrong major and the wrong discipline because what I really seem to be passionate about and love to do is create software. And, uh, and, and to, in 1999, myself, Craig Colby, who many of you know, is one of my best friends, uh, Jeff DeGreek, uh, who's one of the other founders, we, we founded Upstream Software. And that really came from practicing making those one-off custom products, 
learning what I was doing all along that that path that I was on in corporate America, I sort of saw and in the introduction to Hyperion in the mid 90s, I started to see all these things came together and uh, really saw an opportunity to build that first company or that first product, which was called Upstream and is now called FDM, as many of you know. Were, were you once a um, enterprise admin? I actually was an enterprise admin for ITT. And uh, the way that I became the enterprise admin, which is really, I mean, for any of us that, that go way back in enterprise, it's kind of funny. I, I won't say the individual's name, but we had a hired a person that actually worked at Hyperion to come and take over Hyperion admin at ITT. And uh, on accident, this this poor guy actually deleted the database because back then, remember, it was a file system-based enterprise was stored <laughs> on the file system. And uh, he happened to do that, I think, two times. And the second time that he did it, <laughs> um, you know, I was actually working as a financial analyst and was hoping to get on the, and this is, this is really fateful because if this didn't happen, if this, I, I mean, I really should send him something because... If he didn't, if he didn't delete that database, I probably would have gone on to the SAP team, which is what everybody wanted to do at the time, because you know SAP is where the consultants made a lot of money. There were we, I think we had a hundred million dollar project just in the U.S. at ITT to implement SAP, and I, I was just really, really excited to be a part of that uh, system deployment. And this this uh, individual had deleted our enterprise database twice, and then all of a sudden. I got a call from the CFO, no, no interview, nothing. I was just basically the next day I was in charge of, uh, I was in charge of Hyperion Enterprise. I kind of barely, I was a, I was a user of it, but I didn't know much about the system. And the next thing you know, I, I was deploying it to 80. We had 80 instances of enterprise around the world. Um, we weren't using Citrix at the time and we would have to package this thing up. And it was, it was something else. And that's really what got me into uh, Hyperion. And that would have been probably around 1995 or 1996. And then Citrix was coming online for, for many of us that, that can date ourselves back then. And that's when we started to deploy Hyperion centrally, uh, Hyperion Enterprise. And that's really what gave me the opportunity. That, that's what gave the, the rise to the need for FDM. We realized, well, wait a minute, we need to load data into this one instance in a multi-user situation. And I started creating the software because of my interest in writing software to sort of make custom products to load uh, custom, like customized database and data transformation tools to load, um, to load Hyperion Enterprise. And I did that for a few years on a custom basis until I really got it refined enough to think about creating what became the product FDM. Wow. That's amazing. I, I never thought of you as an accountant, Tom, when you were <laughs> describing that. I was just drawing parallels because we know a similar person who I <laughs> later heard that he was an accountant. I was like, no way, Tim is an accountant. He's a core and core programmer. And that's the same thing now you are saying you were an accountant and then started doing this. It is unbelievable. Yeah, I think, you know, in a, in to, to kind of talk about accounting as a professional, right? it's a great way to learn. It's logical. It's not that different from programming in a, in a lot of ways, right? You have to be very logical and, you know, follow procedures. There's not as much creativity in it. Uh, but, you know, as I look at it, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up to to maybe uh, indulge in, in programming. But it's a lot more fun to program than it is to balance a journal entry. I promise that. <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and, and um, it's funny because we're thinking of um, Tim Toe here, Tom. And, and if you guys ran into each other over kind of your careers. 
You know, I have, I've talked to Tim. I remember talking to him back uh, one time at Hyperion. I've, I've been, ran into him a few times, but uh, talking to Tim back in some of the Hyperion days, our paths were crossing, you know, during those partnerships uh, and, you know, was really excited about a lot of the stuff that he was doing with with Excel and the, the tools that he was building around S-Base. So, yeah, I mean, definitely no, not, not lots of interactions, but uh, un- understanding and respect. You, you, you are both Michiganders and your personalities are, you could be related. <laughs> you are very, very much alike. You would, you would be oh, that's, that's funny. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know what it is. Maybe that's the, 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 the cultivating or, you know, sort of the things that you get here growing up in this automotive industry related um, area, which is another, you know, interesting, I think interesting topic because so many people say, how could you start a software company from Michigan? Right. You know, how did you because you just don't think of Michigan as software. And but if you think of how much software goes into a car and how many how many, uh, you know, how much code there is that has to, you know, to make an ABS brake system work. You know, there's a lot of there's an engineering culture here. Mm -hmm. A deep one. So you you sold upstream. You sold upstream to Hyperion, right? Correct. You you have you have thus or you then were a success as an entrepreneur. I mean that's one of the goals: build a company, build a business. At some point, sell it and go off and do new things. Okay, yeah, you, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. What happened to that? Um, well, I mean, I think I, I should talk about that journey a little bit because I think it will define how how we started OneStream and and the idea with with Upstream was it was never so I talked about you know being excited about programming and being able to start a company the thing that made it it interesting to me was just the fact all of my my entire goal when I first started um, upstream was really to just be able to pay my bills doing something that I loved just not be an accountant anymore so that was goal my you know, like the idea of selling a company or building something I just was I was just really just wanted to spend my days working on software. And so once that got going and to kind of get to how we sold the product, we never really even intended to sell the product. We just kept work or sell upstream to Hyperion. It was the idea was Hyperion was the dominant company in the market, at least for financials, you know, at the time, the most market share. So it was logical for us to become a partner and and even work towards exclusivity with, with Hyperion, which is something that we did. And so by doing that, we really tied the fate of our company to Hyperion to, to such a degree. Once we became exclusive, we were fortunate enough to sign a, an agreement with Hyperion, which many people that were in the in the in the sort of the partner community were, were baffled how it happened. But in essence, we became a really strong partner of Hyperion and adding so much value to the to the uh, to the customer that they said, well, we will if you sign ex- if you're exclusive to us, meaning you don't work with Cognos, you don't work with OutlookSoft, we will let our sales team um, sell your software for a for you know some sort of a referral fee, meaning that basically we could use their distribution mechanism. So it was a trade between um, distribution and exclusivity, and that led us to. Um, to getting even closer and closer with Hyperion to the point where they said, well, this, it makes sense for us to buy you now. And so the, the, the whole, the whole way that that company was acquired was because of that, that increasing closeness in the relationship. Uh, and we just felt it was the right thing for the customers, for the employees, for everyone involved to, um, 
accept their offer to purchase us when they did. And so that was, to your point, it was a great success. I thought it was going to be the best point. I thought it was going to be the best time in my life. And it was for six months to a year. And then it became sort of, I don't want to say depressing. I know that sounds really weird to, to even say that because it was such a great time. And yeah, there were lots of money was involved, but you realize you have to have a purpose. You can't be in your, you know, early mid to early thirties and be just sitting there for the rest of your life. You got to have something to do. So after some time off that really sort of, I started to soul search a little thought about getting a PhD or moving on or doing something else. And it was really, no, I think I want to make more software. And, and that's really, it just started to, started to grow, you know, a little bit every day. So Tom, a question. Did you meet yeah. Bob first at, at Hyperion or how did you and Bob kind of kind of make your acquaintance? Yeah, so that's a really interesting, believe it or not, in night in 2000, so Upstream was just barely born. I think we had two or three customers. We still made enough of a splash with Upstream at that point in time that Hyperion brought us out there and I believe it was November of 2000. We were brought to to Stanford to meet with um, Hyperion executives, and they were interested at that time and brought up the idea of OEMing upstream, you know, as uh, into the into the product um, as the data integration uh, tool. We didn't really feel that that was the right right thing to do at the time, but that's the meeting that I first met Bob. So Bob was actually writing HFM uh, at the time, and we presented. FDM, uh, the you know the the earlier versions of it, and uh, Bob and I had a really just just brief cordial introduction, but we hit it off right away. And I still remember what he said to me uh, because I was still this really naive programmer, and he really is a master. I mean, he really is like a true Jedi master programmer, and uh, it, just him complimenting me just really endeared him to me. Um, just uh, after he had seen what we were creating with upstream. So we kind of hit it off from that point on. And since one stream, since upstream works so closely with the Hyperion set of products, we uh, had many uh, meetings and you know, opportunities to work together over the years. And then obviously worked a lot closer once upstream was acquired by Hyperion. So Tom, a question on that part, like when you both, you have done FDM or upstream, Bob has done HFM. When you started OneStream, how did that vision of platform came in? Is it because you thought, okay, we don't want to anymore create silos of products which serve a specific purpose? Uh, was it something where you decided, okay, is that uh, you want to fine tune the product or is that some misstep that you wanted to change? Uh, or how did that notion of making it as a platform came? That's a that's a, a great question. I think it, it really was an evolution in in, in our thinking. Being uh, so, as I mentioned, Bob was at Hyperion, and he had at that time was a vice president, had a lot of the financial products underneath him. So he was starting to see the spectrum of well, this is what financial management is good at. This is what go to the far other end of the spectrum, strategic finance. This is what it does. It's good at many little different models. And then S-Base is in the middle covering all the ground in between that. So if you think of that as the spectrum, I know there, I, I tried to draw the picture here with my words. Hopefully everybody gets that. But think of a spectrum of big monolithic strict cube down to, you know, then moving through the planning and, and S-Base and analytics and then all the way out to strategic finance with many, many different little models. That vision um, really 
had a big impact on Bob. So Bob was thinking, you know, that way. I had a similar, uh, I came at it from a different approach because I had written adapters with FDM to basically every every competitor that that's out there from. I wrote an adapter and we had a customer on Outlook Soft version 1.0. So I had understood that engine. We did ComShare, uh, we did Cognos. So all the different, I had seen all these different applications from the point of view of having to integrate integrate to their engines. And that was really the, um, uh, the way that our two, you know, we started talking more and more then about that idea. And we also, you know, through the idea of all these different products, you know that Hyperion kind of grew through acquisition. Uh, great products. We were so proud to be a part of that. There's no way we could, I could even be talking to you without being a part of that ecosystem and meeting all the smart people that were involved in it. But you realize when you're a technologist and you started to see this in the sort of 2006, 7, 8, 9 time period when they were trying to formulate the suite, the system nine concepts, a lot of the work was being done just trying to bridge the different technologies that were present in the Hyperion suite because of the acquisitions. And that's the thing. So also, if you take that point, sort of all those different technologies, the idea, and we've seen that the, the, the good and the bad of the different products across that spectrum, my vision or my experience with the different um, products that were in the market, all the of the competing products, I actually was certified on Seagate Holos for which was the analytic product of business objects. So I had a lot of different uh, views. And so we got together and we said, what would the market really want? And the reason you might wonder, well, so from 2007 until we started the product, the company really like 2010, 11, Bob and I really started working together. Why that big gap? When Oracle bought Hyperion, everybody thought that Oracle was just going to figure that out in terms of, you know, we thought that they were just going to rationalize all those products into one, you know, all the way to the ERP. And so we were sort of waiting to see what was happening did they have the same vision that we were seeing, you know, that you needed to put this stuff together? So the whole idea of coming with the platform was watching that and seeing all these moving parts. And we and also looking at what happened with ERPs. So go back to my time as an accountant. When I started working at ITT pre-working on Hyperion, most of my job was fixing interfaces from payroll systems and purchasing systems that were blowing up. Uh, the interfaces that were that we were trying to post into the general ledger. So different systems. We had we had PeopleSoft. We had a different purchasing system. We had a different AR system. They all had to make their way to the general ledger in the same way of all these moving parts. So I was heavily influenced by that pain. And then what came with SAP or Oracle or other the real integrated ERP. We felt that CPM EPM had to rationalize like that. So you you have a performance management audience. Um, I guess I imagine that all of our listeners know what OneStream is. Maybe you could give us a high level overview of what what the product is. We talked about the, the platform. You've, we talked about your history in data integration, tying to lots of different systems and tools. But but what what is OneStream? The way that I think of OneStream is it's a collection of interrelated engines. What we tried to do is go from a suite-based approach that you see in the that that sort of had evolved with Hyperion, with SAP, with Cognos, where you had the different planning and um, consolidation types of products for, for so when you really think about let's stop for a second and say, what is the goal of EPM CPM? The way I always describe it is that 
ERPs record data. So data is really the, 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 the key uh, term there. And CPM enriches that and turns it into information. So when you think of CPM, you really think of uh, the, uh, the idea that we need to take these data points and we need to use them to produce you know, statutory reporting uh, views, management reporting views. Um, usually companies might have many different ERPs, so we need to rationalize different types of data, different, different uh, views of data. And, and bring those together and then be able to plan for those in a consistent way. Uh, and then all sorts of additional management types of reporting. So what one stream really is, as we started looking at what were some of the, what are the good and the bad of the different systems that were being used to solve those problems in a traditional CPM suite. And so our, our quest, which is not done and we keep working on is, well, we wanna solve the external reporting. We wanna solve financial planning. We wanna solve, operational planning, uh, which is definitely, you know, growing. And we, we all know about Anaplan or different competitors that are out there. And you're really focused on very fluid, fast, flexible types of planning. And those are areas where we want to keep evolving our engine, uh, our, our platform in a way that when you own one stream, we keep giving you more and more capability to solve the different problems that you're, if you're a consultant that your customer may have, we want to be out of the way. We want, once, once somebody has one stream, we want to give you enough software and capability to solve the analytic puzzle and the data puzzles that you have, but then also give you the controls via workflow to make sure that users can properly feed information into those models that you're creating, the reporting and analytics, uh, and, and the layer on top, so that a user can just seamlessly look at all the different types of data. And, and that, that's really what the vision is. And then also be able to extend the product through our marketplace. So OneStream is really a development environment as well, as, as I think some of you have experienced. You can code in it. You can create products in it. And that's, you know, continuing to evolve that and, and fully realize it. That's, that's, to me, what OneStream is. So, so a question. Um... Tom, you know, kind of diving into that more of a, I'll say maybe a strategic finance or a planning use case. Do you, are you, it sounded like you were, were alluding to some changes or maybe a future roadmap uh, that you're looking to maybe enhance that or any thoughts there? Yeah, exactly. We are working very um, diligently on creating, I'll give you guys the scoop. Uh, we have a, you work traditionally when you go in one stream and you want to run a calculation, um, you have a calculate and you have a consolidate. And for those of us that are on the phone that know what consolidate is, it's the very strict full intercompany elimination, fast, perfect translations and two pass aggregations, all the really strict things that will be required to produce a book of record type of statement. But when you're doing planning, a lot of times when you're doing planning, you want to just be able to do a fast aggregation, the old rack and stack term. So we're we're working and we'll have some big announcements coming out this year where we are, we'll be demonstrating that type of capability and even more, um, more flexibility. So different types of calculation algorithms, allowing us to have very rapid, more aggregation oriented uh, rollups versus consolidation oriented rollups. You cannot see it, but I'm clapping my hands over here. <laughs> yeah. It is pretty yeah. exciting. Some big smiles here, yeah. 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 And, and well, you know, to, to respond to that, the, the thing that we've always said and what I tell customers is we're trying to rationalize this for you. The thing that we've really 
tried to explain to customers is we we need this we we don't want to just attach trinkets onto the side of the product. We really want to make sure that we we're, we're thoughtful on how we add features so that when we come out with a new release, it just works and it's a new option and it's done in in a, in a way that's as thoughtful as possible in the sense that your learning curve to use it is low as well. And so that's why, you know, I've tried to explain to, to some folks that have been using their product or, you know, when we see good ideas that come through our, our product management organization or through the ticketing system that, okay, it'll take us a little while to think about it, but we carry this burden of, you know, we don't want to end up with a compatibility matrix like a lot of our competitors have where they, they, they partner for some feature or they, they do something, they bolt something on. So we're, that's the, the idea of a platform is trying to maintain a low cost of ownership and a high degree of reliability, but consistently keep adding the features that the community is asking for. OneStream customers really like OneStream, don't they? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing we're so proud of uh, as a firm. And, and the thing that I, I, I always feel that I have to you know, caveat that in the sense that we know we're not perfect. These are hard projects. And all of you, all of us that have been involved in this industry for a very long time understand what it's like sometime to walk into a customer and have to unravel years of application development that's been going on with, with the products that they were using and then having to figure out how to best implement that in the new product, in our case, OneStream. So our, but what we've really tried to do with our culture and our company is to motivate everybody to be engaged to to make the customer a success. And I think that comes through. It's pretty it's a pretty basic, I think, business behavior. If you do that and you you act in the in the in a sense that you just do what you say you're gonna do, you you admit if you've done something wrong and you work hard to to make it right, uh, customers generally appreciate that. And it's it's a, just a I think it's one of the basic tenets of of doing good business. Yeah, we've 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 watched your your company go up like a rocket. Um, it's It's been very interesting for those of us who come from a different technology place to see or to observe OneStream not even being mentioned and then being mentioned kind of dismissively and all of a sudden you're competitor number one. Uh, that's that's happened in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I think um, it still feels to me like every day I still get up thinking that somebody's standing over my back waiting to get me. So I, I, I think that's healthy. I keep, I, I always, to me, we'll have made it when one stream is the de facto when C, every CFO says I have to have one stream. And that's really, you know, that's sort of the, the goal is to just really become the de facto solution. Um, but what we are really, really fortunate about here is we continue to gain momentum and that momentum comes from the partner community, you know, individuals like yourself that understand the product that help push us and make it better you know, that give us real feedback. And um, I think that's what's what's happening is we're, we're getting to that point where we've solved enough problems for some significant companies that we're starting to get a bit more credibility. But we're also starting to focus on um, talking about the brand more. In the early days, we really didn't um, we didn't try to speak with analysts that much. We didn't you know, purposely just because we had our head down. We had enough uh, demand for the product that we could build the company to where we thought it would get a good foundation, give us an opportunity to keep growing. And we figured we don't really need to be shouting from the rooftops yet. Let's make sure that we we have this thing 
working and functioning the way that we expect it to. And then our voice will get louder. And I think what you're seeing now is our voice getting louder. I'm proud of what our marketing team's been doing and um, and and the brand awareness that's happening and just, you know, which is enabling us to compete better uh, and to get and maybe be a little bit more respected or even disliked. Do you find that as the company has grown from being kind of, you know, early on an insurgent in this in this market to being an established competitor, like how does that change the way you have to do things as an organization with a you know an established customer base and th- those kind of things? It's 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 really that's a great question. It's I mean, and that that is the intense focus right now. So for me personally, it's a it's a very big change in the sense that I used to be just so involved in coding. I still am involved in engineering as much as I can be, but I'm not really, you know, heads down on the product anymore. But most of our focus, you know, you're starting to just see the way to think about it is much more specialization with inside of OneStream. So, you know, hiring and making sure that you have key leaders over particular areas and continuing to invest and build out um, each of those areas that you can focus in a way that you're a lot, you're able to scale the business um, that can, so that it can keep up with, with the growth that we're experiencing. So the biggest changes that you're seeing right now is, is a little bit more of the company growing up, formalizing, you know, for those that know the company where we've always been a bootstrapped company. I mean, up, same thing with upstream and with one stream in the sense that we never took any, we never took or used any debt. We always grew by positive operating cash flow and really were a disciplined, had a disciplined business model to grow the company. Um, and to grow at a very high rate and grow it profitably, really, really challenging. But now you need to play the game at a much higher level. So, um, you know, the law of large numbers is present as well. And so uh, that's a big challenge. So, Tom, um, you mentioned bootstrapping. So, I mean, you guys took a, an equity infusion from KKR. I, I don't know how long ago it was right now. What, a year, year and a half ago? Yeah, about two years. Yeah, you're pretty close. Okay. All right. Um, can you talk about what, why you did that? I'm, I'm sure that was to kind of accomplish some things. Maybe it was take a, take a little cash out of the company, but also uh, probably to do something kind of uh, more and bigger and compete more. Yeah. So there, there, were, a, there were a number of factors um, why that was the right time. So we had a lot of individuals, many of them that you know, who were at that founding level partner that took some pretty extreme sacrifices um, to to be a part of the company, it had successful businesses and pretty much even closed them and joined. So there was a little bit of an equity need, not need, but want for some of those individuals. Those of us that were part of, of the upstream journey were not really in a position to think, oh, you know, we want, uh, we need to take money. So it was, that wasn't the primary motive. The primary motive was to, um, and, and I think this will this will be understood by those that are in the CPM market. We were we sell to a very risk averse group of, of companies and to a risk averse uh, customer, the CFO. And so when you had to, we really had to run at this very very strict bootstrapping. When, when you're bootstrapping um, or you're in your in your managing your balance sheet as a startup, you had to be very very conservative in the way that you ran the company. And that doesn't mean that I, I wanted to go out and be a rogue and use debt and things of that nature. But companies were betting on us not for a year. If you're replatforming to OneStream, 
to use you're typically, you know, most companies have been on Hyperion for 10 years. That's a big, that's a big uh, ask. So we wanted to make sure that um, our customers, as we got bigger, saw us as a, you know, as a growing company and that we were, you know, that we had interest and we had access to the capital markets and that we could be viewed as a more strategic company. So that was the primary uh, focus there was to make sure that we could um, uh, associate ourselves with a premium tier one capital uh, partner and, uh, and and give ourselves the opportunity to think more strategically about the business. And I think what you're seeing over the, over the last two years is we've actually done that. That's where we've really uh, been able to make investments um, in a way that we want to make them. We've been able to really seek great counsel uh, regarding capital markets, regarding just the general management and scaling of the company because of the experience that our partner, you know, KKR has. And that's been, it's really worked out um, in, in the, to, to the way that we, in, in a way that we hoped it would. Oh, that's great. And another question. Go, go ahead, Selvin. Community part. You did mention about the partner community, the company growing, and we are talking about that part. And all the four of us on this call are big proponents. We are evangelists, and uh, we are big proponents of the community. So the book coming out, and then so is there more exciting news for partners and users of OneStream on the community side of things? For sure, the my one of my biggest and, and you know this goes to KKR as I'm in board meetings now. One of the things that we talk about the most is as we continue to grow the business and we continue to think about scaling ourselves, we also need to think about scaling the community and making the right investments to help the community um, self scale and and be able to get as much knowledge transfer and accelerate knowledge transfer. And make sure that we're giving you uh, the, the you know the partners and and everybody that's involved with OneStream the ability to to use it most effectively. So that's why we announced our certification program. We created OneStream Press. We pulled our top internal architects off the road or off the services side and created something that we call the Architect Factory. And what we did with the Architect Factory that's the that was the genesis for the certification program. The genesis for OneStream Press. And we, we, what you're trying to do is, you know, really accelerate knowledge transfer and put higher quality materials out, uh, rethink the way that we that you would get trained on OneStream uh, to do more and more um, online virtual types of training. That's the that's the the focus in, in that community. And then also to allow you to distinguish yourself. If you're a real OneStream expert, to give you badging and give you the opportunity to show what you know about the product or if you have an interest in becoming an author, to, an author um, because you've done some unique solutions, to give you a venue to contribute and to establish yourself as a subject matter expert uh, within within the OneStream community, those are the things that we're really focused on, and, and, and you know, the, which is why you're seeing these announcements, and we're putting significant uh, dollars and energy behind that. Could could we return to the technology itself? Sure. On this notion of a platform. So there are, you know, if you think about how performance management tools work, there's source data, there's transformations, there's business rules with lowercase b's and r's that are applied against it. And then there is this, to, to use an old-fashioned term, there is this OLAP, online analytical processing cube idea. That happens in a bunch of different places within OneStream. I can create a dashboard that pulls data off of uh, stage data, right? Source level 
semi-transformed or fully transformed data. There's the OneStream XF uh, in-memory cube. We now have access to commoner databases through BI Blend or through Analytic Blend. Kind of give us a, you could give our audience uh, a feel for this this broad scope and breadth of the tool and how it all comes together um, under one umbrella. Sure. So the first, so when we think, let, let's kind of think of where the, the genesis was, or we think about the, the core analytic engine, the in-memory analytic engine, and the unique technology that we created to, to give that as much flexibility as we can. We, start, we started with what we considered the hardest problem, just computationally difficult. When I say the hardest problem, that's no disrespect to Aspace or any other analytics. So it's just there's a lot of business process or, or what we always call it financial intelligence that has to happen to produce consolidated numbers. So that's why you see so many planning companies, but you don't see very many consolidation companies because it's just really tedious and, and tough. So we knew we had to lick that first because we we our, our goal was to connect all the dots to the CFO. So once we had that, but we said, you know, we can't just be a monolithic cube. When I say monolithic cube, think of, let's go back to the spreadsheet days before there were tabs. I'll really date myself, but I started with Lotus one, two, three, right? And there were no there were no three-dimensional spreadsheets. That was a big thing when that came out and you could have tabs. What you used to do is make one giant spreadsheet and, and have like uh, sections going down, you know, like if you think of uh, scaling down the, the sheet so you don't impact formulas in one area with another. Well, then all what happened, it came along and you had um, these tabs and you could nicely organize your spreadsheets the way we're all used to it today. We kind of, when you think of extensible dimensionality, it's something like that, because what it allows us to do is to sort of partition and use different different variants of cubes. But the way that that engine is structured is it's very well, it's 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 very high performance, very multi-threaded, um, a very sophisticated in-memory analytic engine, but it's also strict in the way that it's adhering to, you can use it for planning, but it's adhering to a lot of the, uh, the strictness of all that financial intelligence. So over time, you, you mentioned the BI Blend engine. We said, well, we have some customers that want aggregations and want snapshot read-only views. Uh, and in, in columnar databases prevented, provided that opportunity. We were able to leverage a lot of our financial engine capabilities, our dimensionality, and produce some stored aggregations and provide a new variation on how you could use the data. And, and you know, what we keep doing is just evolving. Customer use case us, cases move us towards these solutions. And so... If I, if I were to look at that as a spectrum, what's in the middle is this aggregation that I talked about earlier. And so as I look at the evolution of the engine, where we see it going is just more and more flexibility, more options on how you could use the aggregation engine, the in-memory analytic engine, to do different variants of, of that aggregation process, not just consolidation. And so when you fill that picture all the way in, right, between consolidation, then aggregation, and then column store stored index uh, aggregation, you really are covering a lot of the, it's a lot of the problems that you would see or challenges that you would see in just about any customer. So just like you sort of see the iPhone that that just keep getting better, right? The, the, the camera on the iPhone 12 is amazing, you know, but it's still an iPhone. You still know how to use it. That's the way I see it. We're in this evolutionary phase where we have the engines, we know the major segments, the major engines in the product, we're, we, you know, the next release that's going to ship, I think, next week, we added a new feature to the staging engine where if you don't want to store all the detailed 
data, when you're transforming data to load the cube, you can do what's called a direct load and it won't store the detailed drill down data. That's if, if you're not doing actuals and you don't need to have that audit, we can avoid saving a lot of data and give you. So we're constantly evolving and giving new capabilities and new flexibility um, as more and more customers are using it. We get more feedback on how they want to use it and we keep adapting to the new workloads or, or, um, or activities that they want to do in the system. So, so, I, oh, so I, I hear a pause here. Um, so a little non sequitur question, but you know, I know you guys achieve FedRAMP, um, some level of FedRAMP certification. Yep. Um, has, has it opened some doors in the kind of the public sector for you or any thoughts there? Yeah, that, that's another great question. That's a, another one of the key reasons why we were excited to partner with KKR because we had entered into the public sector and, um, as anybody that's ever anybody that's ever operated in the public sector versus uh, you know selling to private companies, it's a completely different process, uh, sales process, everything about it. Not to mention the cloud requirements, the the um, audit and transparency that is required. So yes, we have um, FedRAMP moderate, I believe, is the um, certification level that we have. And we have been uh, getting a, a growing number of, of uh, government agencies, and we're excited about that market. And you know, obviously, we have uh, uh, General Petraeus is on our board and has a, a pretty. He runs the Global Institute for KKR, and has a lot of understanding of how the Army buys software or how different parts of the government buy software, which is insightful for us and helpful. So we see that as a as a growing and important market that we're continuing to uh, to to attempt to um, serve the best that we can and uh, consider additional levels of certification, which is a really big investment, uh, by the way, to to get those levels of certification. So um, when I think about the technologies that OneStream has today. Um, Yep, there's the cube, there's the data transformation, there's that ability to get data, calendar data. What What's coming? I, I saw you, wow, was it three years ago, talking about machine learning? I think that was the first time you spoke about it, sort of a, a teaser preview at Splash. Um, what's going on? What other new things are you looking at that are outside the the norm for, for one stream and even maybe for management in general? Yeah. So a couple of, a couple of things. So a great question on the, on the machine learning. It's interesting. Yeah. The very first time that we were had a really interesting integration and, and executed neural networks, both, both Watson and uh, Azure ML studio was, you know, really powerful. That still exists today. And, but what happened, I, I had a thesis that, there was such a, if, if everybody remembers that hype cycle, hype cycle around that time, it was just everybody was talking about it and it was the most exciting thing. And my thought was, is that all finance departments were going to be developing teams of data scientists and we're going to be doing their own models. Because one of the one of the misunderstandings about real machine learning is that it's not really easy. It's not very easily generalizable. Right. So you can't I, I can't make a neural network to predict sales of a restaurant um, and have it be even very useful for the restaurant next door um, just because of the specifics of that restaurant and the, 
the way that the models have to be learned and trained. And I'm talking about real machine learning, not just statistical methods, which are typically you know, referred to as predictive analytics. And so what happened in late 2019 was we sort of had the realization that, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't materializing. So we 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 had a lot of customers that wanted to take our what we called ML one two three, which was our product that could do everything that I just said. And if you've seen the demo, it's pretty pretty cool. It's pretty impressive. The problem is that it still relied that relied on the customer building their own data science. You know, doing doing the work. Even though OneStream wrapped it, called it. You know, like I said, you had a graphical designer to do to do things in Watson. The customer still had to know how to, to, to build the model in Watson or use or build the model in Azure ML Studio or any. We were agnostic to pretty much any ML engine, H2O, you name it. We did some stuff with AWS. The whole, the whole thing is that just didn't materialize. So we decided that you know, where the market is going is auto ML. So we will be releasing this year our ML services technology, which is a complete ser- you know, server level, fully uh, Python-based um, machine learning service that is a wizard-based process that takes the need to be a data scientist out of the equation, but lets you get real machine learning. So the first application we'll be releasing is called Sensible ML. Um, and we call it Sensible ML because it's sensible because you don't have to be a data science to do it. And it's time series focused on version one, and it's very sophisticated uh, in the sense that in, in the example that I showed in 2016, I, I demonstrated how we could do feature engineering and you could take three columns of point of sale data from a restaurant and you could use it using data science understanding, create 30, 30 features, which is what you basically need to expand and create points of interest for a, a machine learning model to learn from. And so you have to turn your three columns, say your, 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 your number, the, you know, the sales number, the day that's not gonna if you just if I just give those three columns to a neural network it's not gonna do anything with it but I need to give it events and features uh, and, and values that tell that that give the model points of interest or variables that that are uh, that are going to be that are going to contribute to the prediction so but that's a big that's hard it, it's a pain to create even thirty to feature engineering is ninety percent of the problem for machine learning. So what we have now is an automated feature engineering. Instead of just creating 30 columns, it'll create 300 features for you automatically, and then and then whiten those to the most predictive features. And you'll end up with a model that is suited and best fit uh, for your problem. And then after that, that, that feature set um, is then able to be used for, obviously for the, for the full training of the model and direct execution of uh, we've, we've current, we're currently integrating with Facebook profit and some of the, so this is all Python. This is outside of our normal, um, Microsoft stack. This is a complete Python, uh, service. Well, one last product question for me, at least what, what's going on with analytics? You, what, what is as much as you can tell us and our audience, what should we expect, um, from, from one stream? You, you've got, consolidations you've got planning the kind of the third leg of that stool i'll, I'll say that machine learning is kind of a little bit outside of that um analytics is that that other piece yeah i see a convergence so when i when i think of our analytics strategy right now i'm kind of i'm i'm 
I'm combining the predictive, you know, so the ML, which gets more operational because again, machine learning uh, does better with more operational data sets than it does with monthly data sets. The aggregation, what starts to provide more flexibility around, um, you know, aggregate aggregation versus consolidation. Uh, the other piece is we're going to piggyback, you know, the intent right now is to piggyback on the, um, the aggregation algorithms to produce what we call snapshot cubes as well. Uh, so more um, allowing you to provide a great deal of control similar to what you're doing with BI Blend. So if you've, anybody that's worked with BI Blend, you can, instead of just holistically taking a dimension or a, a predefined cube in one stream, you can take you know, small subsets of dimensions and really tailor the analytics that you want. But again, you end up with a column store index versus a, uh, a relational table versus a cube. Uh, where we're heading when the analytics front is to provide more of that uh, column store index type of capability, that, that ability to narrow and create snapshotted views, um, but off of aggregations and um, in, in a cube-based format as well. So if you put all those pieces together, it's the more flexible uh, capabilities, uh, more flexibility in terms of planning. And, and, and when I say planning, in, in terms of aggregation versus consolidation, rapid one-off type of uh, roll-ups that you want to do, then potentially leverage it, leveraging that into more of a snapshot type of view um, to, to do these more targeted uh, types of analytic views to complement the column store indexing views that we already have. So you take all that together, we already have the ability to report and dashboard on top of all those. We just enrich that and give you more capability to um, uh, to create the data or enrich the data with a, a couple more uh, ways that are, I think will be a bit more flexible and allow you to do some, you know, some really clever new, uh, produce a lot of new value for your, for your clients. BI blend is very wizard based. There's, there's really no, there's really no code. Is that how these snapshot views will will work? Is that sort of the vision for it? Because I, I, I've written a moderate amount of code within your tool, um, and I was pleasantly surprised to see that I couldn't do that. There really was nowhere to to, to write stuff. Yeah, that's that is. Um... The goal, that's what I was kind of trying, that's what I was alluding to a little bit earlier. And that is, I really want to, it's our job to try to rationalize it and make it as easy as possible. Say, so for example, the aggregation capability, there's nothing to learn. You just need to go and click, you, you pick a new um, cons member, consolidation dimension member, that's called aggregate. You know, that's the way it's prototyped right now, or that's the what the, the current view that I've seen of it, how it works. Nothing, nothing for anyone to learn. In, in, in terms of thinking about using that and cross-leveraging that into a snapshot type of view of that, which could, you know, could be narrow, we would try to make it as similar to BI Blend as possible so that if you've already interacted with the BI Blend configuration, you could interact with this, but instead of producing columnar, you're producing uh, in-memory analytics. So that's what I mean by rationalizing, and that's where we're, we look at it and we sort of scratch our head and say, well, how can we take this concept and, and move it um, you know, provide an additional layer of flexibility without really introducing an entirely new, uh, difficult concept to the user community or to the consulting community. So those are the areas I really just see, again, that is the evolution in the analytic framework for us is more flexibility around the creation of, of different uh, types of data. 
So a question. Tom, I do uh, have a. I'm sorry. Go go John, go for go it. Okay. Go ahead. Now I was going to say I do have a tough question for you, Tom, because <laughs> I was I was explaining to a friend of mine, um, like he was asking where do I work, so I told him Mindstream. Then he was asking what tool do you work? I said OneStream. I didn't talk about upstream. So what's the deal with the stream? So he asked me that same question. I gave him an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what's the deal with the streams? Well, there is a logic to it. So uh, so the first upstream, the vision with upstream was that we are moving data from the ERP up into the analytic layer. So upstream. So that was why. So then one stream, we were trying to collapse many products into one. So we called it one stream. Ah, that's nice. I was thinking about the fish and then it moving up the stream. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, we like we liked the fish. Um, but yeah, the whole idea was how do you move this up? Uh, how do you move data up and then how do you how do you collapse this into one one view? Uh, so I'll I'll ask my question, which might actually be a hard question. I don't know if that was a hard question. So, <laughs> um, so Cameron and I were talking, and I think I think one thing that would be really great here would be to kind of have some kind of meta language, kind of like MDX or even like a space calc script, where you're kind of addressing the data in a in a cube, uh, kind of all in one go, versus kind of more of a I'll say. A, a typical programming type of view where you're kind of doing for loops and things like that and kind of chunking through things. Have you guys talked about that all, at all? We have. Um, in fact, I'm really giving you early. I, I've been personally working on a, on a graphical programming language that I call OBL, which is one stream block language. And I can currently, you can drag and drop and create, you know, full, and, and I've made it uh, a polymorphic language where it can write different languages as well. So it's not just writing, uh, say, uh, a VB.NET code. It could write C Sharp. It could write Python. And those are the things that we plan to bring together is to, is to embed into the platform at graphical. So don't think of Calc, Calc Manager. A block might be something that's specific to a Calc. Think of a fully graphical programming language. Um, that you can really uh, advance and speed up your your time to value. Um, it's really it's my pet project. I'm so excited about it. I wish I could show you guys right now. But uh, it's Christmas for me already. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's really fun. It's really a fun uh, really a fun project. Um, and uh, we I'm, I'm actually going to try. It's for the first time inside of of, of one stream. Um, I'm going to try to treat it like an open source project. So I have the base done. Uh, but I want to get a I want to get a lot of engineers, you know, rather than just like giving it to a team and saying, hey, um, here's here's the spec. Here's what we want to write. I want people to sort of organically, you know, take the foundation that I've created and uh, contribute to it. And hopefully we'll come up with something that's really the community will really enjoy. But it's exciting. It's neat. It looks really uh, I think you'll uh, when you when you get a chance to see see it, it's it's really cool. Will we see flash? Um, I plan on it. Yes. That, so, but I don't want to commit yet. Um, but I, uh, uh, since I'm, since running the company is actually becoming a little bit bigger job than it used to be. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm having less and less time to code, but yes, I, uh, I plan to debut it at Splash. That will be fantastic. I mean, I'm sure you're going to find people like Solvin and other really smart people out there that are, are going to contribute to something like that. So I think yeah. that's wonderful to kind of look at this from more of a, 
I'll say open source or crowdsourcing kind of point of view. I think that's, that's, that's great if you can go there with something like this. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. We would like people to be able to extend it. And my, my goal is, you know, we mentioned that uh, machine learning services, right, is all Python. Um, so if we want, you know, part of that service, uh, which is, again, something that we're, we're interested in potentially doing here is enabling some direct Python uh, work as well. It'd be great to have this AVA language allow you to forward engineer Python without having to know how to write Python or any other code to, to work within the standard platform. That is interesting. So you're saying instead of going with VB.net, I could write C Sharp or Python and then one stream will take it and then run with it? Well, in the core platform, we could always have run, you know, C Sharp or VB.net because it's all .NET, right? That they, they, they end up in the same intermediate language. We'll probably still, so I could compile, we could compile C Sharp right now. Right now, we'll probably keep the core platform as, um, you know, as, as, VB, but the, the, the intent of the ABA language, as I mentioned, is to be polymorphic, where the same structures, the same programming flow statements that you would that you're dragging and dropping um, can generate VB, can generate C sharp, or can generate Python, um, or potentially even SQL. Um, so the whole concept of this, the whole concept of this language, is to give you a, a block oriented um, uh, language or construct. To you know, you, you still have to think structurally. But it's not, it's, you're in it. So don't, don't think of it as I'm dragging literally the lines of code that I want to write. You're, it's like you're, Scratch, right? Do people, kids are, I don't know whether. You're yeah, talking. it's, it's, it's similar to Scratch. So, so like I looked at, you know, as Scratch, Blockly, and I don't know if you've ever um, heard of LabVIEW, which is what's used for, for programming Lego Mindstorm yeah, robots. I, which is I, something. I've done it. Yeah, so I do a lot of like hobbyist type of robot stuff, and the lab view, which is more scientific programming, it better aligns. In fact, I even tried to sort of like think of it in the same way as how you use lab view um, in terms of associating our engines as like a green block in the Lego Mindstorms world is a is an engine controller. So I have green blocks for our engine controllers, and you know it's that kind of concept where I think it aligns better to. A scientific programming um, construct than it does to a um, than it does to more of like a Blockly or a Scratch. This this will fundamentally change how we implement and own OneStream. That, that's my goal. Like it's really about mass adoption for the community. And, and the idea too is I'll still give you free form. I you know one of the things that you'll find though about this type of programming implementation is. Um, so I mentioned, you know, just this hobbyist kind of robot stuff. It's it's good to a point to have the graphical, but then I still find myself getting to a certain point when I'm working with that where I want real code. I, I mean, I feel like I want to type. You're going to still have that in one stream to some degree, but I think, you know, my goal is to somewhere eclipse sort of that 70, 80% where you wouldn't even dream of writing an api.data.calculate statement. You would just pick the calculate block pick from a couple of you pick from a couple of items and you could run it in a loop or do whatever you want. And it's just really clean and simple to, to use. Like that's the, you know, but you might, if you're going to do something really sophisticated, like create a marketplace application, use our full development environment, you're probably not going to use, um, you know, Avil to, to, to author that. However, you might use sections of Avil because part one of the constructs of, of the Avil languages to be able to create snippets as well. So you could create blocks of code and then use them you know, use it to write the code for you and put it into a larger uh, code, you know, code structure that you're using. 
I, I can't tell you which one excites me more, the aggregation or the parable. Wow. Yeah, there's lots of, lots of cool things happening. I said I'm really excited to go to Splash this year because we have lots of really cool stuff. And I'm super excited about uh, the machine learning engine, too, because everybody thinks of machine learning just true to also as like time series in terms of business. Right, time series prediction where, you know, versus just traditional statistical methods. But we are also really excited about clustering and anom- cluster and anomaly detection. And how would you use that in a, in a business problem if you think about it? Right. Most people. But think about a, a retailer that has stores all over, you know, all over the world. And maybe their stores have coolers in them as well. Maybe they keep refreshments and they have to maintain those coolers. You know, what, how do you do your, your expense budget on that cooler? Well, if you can go and, and, and do clustering and anomaly detection, you can cluster your stores. You can let the algorithm cluster your stores by, is it a rural store, an inner city store? Is, you know, what's the square footage? How many coolers does it have? And it'll cluster those stores and it can come up with the, you know, your, your really good views on what the mean and medium and what, what should the cost be to maintain this cooler every year? And these are your outliers. You know, you have... 20 stores that are like these other stores, but they're instead of spending 10,000 a year to, to maintain it like they should, they're spending 60. Do you want to press a button and coerce them to the mean and force them to explain why they're so far off that level? That's really actionable machine learning versus a predictive side of machine learning. Wow. Well, you are, you and your colleagues on stream are, and the community and your customers um, are really moving this product forward. This has been a fantastic, interesting, spectacular. I, I'll throw as many super <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank you so, so much uh, for being a guest on EPM Conversations. Thank you. And I'd like to thank you guys for really being uh, so interested in, especially in BI Blandis, or the whole product. But you guys, I really appreciate your enthusiasm for BI Bland because that one's personal to me as well. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thanks, Tom. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. And All right. Thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to EPM Conversations. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye.